Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 76, Suleiman the Magnificent. Now, a few announcements to start off. First, thanks a lot to Christian Barzakov for making a regular contribution through PayPal. Besides that, no new Patreon supporters this time. But I have a few other bigger announcements. First, now, this is something you've probably heard me mention I've wanted to do for a really long time. Uh, and it's the, and it's been one of my kind of Patreon pledges, but the trouble has been finding the right people to work with me on it. And Finally found those people, and so we are shortly going to be launching this podcast in Bulgarian. Uh, you know, it's always been a kind of, I've always had kind of two different audiences, uh, foreigners often who know Bulgarians or in relationships with Bulgarians or something, who are just general, generally interested in history, but also a lot of Bulgarians who are kind of eager for a new, different perspective on their own history, because I don't think I've really mentioned it, but the way Bulgarian history is usually taught in schools here is ooh, a, li- a little dull to be polite, you know, to, to, to put it mildly. Uh, I once taught Bulgarian history in a high school here, and my students were kind of shocked that I wanted them to really think critically and to write essays and think broadly about themes and ideas of history, and that I wanted to do more than just teach them a bunch of numbers and dates and uh, kind of pointless minutiae. And so, yeah, with all that taken into account, uh, hopefully soon I'm going to have a new RSS feed, going to add a new section to the website, all this, and we'll have a Bulgarian language version. Second big announcement. uh, Now, I've wanted to do this also for many years, kind of debated it back and forth, but I finally pulled the trigger and decided to invest in a much, much better microphone. Um, Never been that happy with this one. It's uh, the kind of microphone that picks up too much background noise. You can hear the busy street behind me all the time. Sorry about that, but this is a a much better setup that should really strongly reduce or even eliminate that background noise and just should make it easier for me to record and much nicer for you all to hear. So look forward, that should be arriving in a little over a week, so the next episode will be recorded on this new equipment. All right, enough announcements, time to get into the good stuff. Now, last time, Even as Sultan Selim I focused on massive conquests in the East, the West slowly crumbled before the Ottomans as Moldavia willingly submitted. A peasant revolt crippled Hungary, which soon lost its king to be replaced by his weak and underage son. The Habsburgs more or less secured their ongoing influence and control of Hungary through these events as Charles V rose to lead the family astride a global empire. Now, with his total victory over the Mamluks, Selim doubled the size of the empire to include not just his recent conquests in Anatolia and Mesopotamia, but the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. The east was now won. The Ottomans had little to fear there and could focus entirely on the now long-neglected European front. With Selim's death in 1520, his son Suleiman I took the throne at the head of an empire ready to conquer. 
Now, just at this moment, a Venetian envoy described the young sultan, who was 26, not 25, at the time. The Venetian wrote, quote, The sultan is only 25 years old, tall and slender, but tough, with a thin and bony face. Facial hair is evident, but only barely. The sultan appears friendly and in good humor. Rumor has it that Suleiman is aptly named, enjoys reading, is knowledgeable, and shows good judgment. End quote. So, no surprise, the Europeans had a fairly positive view of Suleiman. They could tell he was, well, a young man ready for the tasks ahead of him. He wasn't sort of brash or bold uh, in a negative sense. He wasn't uh, sort of hot-headed. He was calm, rational, and, uh, well, ready to take things at the sort of pace he wanted. Now, as we've seen with sultans like Mehmet the Conqueror, the young Suleiman wasn't about to waste any time doing what he wanted to do as sultan. Looking at his father, he knew he might not have that much time, after all. Suleiman took the throne on September the 30th, and by January, he had already put down a rebellion in Syria by the governor of Damascus. Around this time, his envoys arrived in Buda to collect tribute from the young Hungarian king Louis II, only to receive the envoy's head in a box in response. Evidently, the 15-year-old Hungarian king, along with his advisors, believed that the Papal States and the Holy Roman Emperor were going to help. Remember, uh, Louis was married to the granddaughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, and, well, he thought he could afford to sort of push off the Ottomans and that he would have their support. And so by May, Suleiman was departing Constantinople, bound for the Hungarian border. By July, he was at the walls of Belgrade, the mightiest and most important fortress protecting Hungary from Ottoman invasion. His predecessor, none other than Mehmet the Conqueror, had failed to take Belgrade 66 years earlier. Suleiman was determined not to make the same mistakes. Because back then, in 1456, the legendary Hungarian commander John Hunyadi had led a counterattack on the Ottoman camp and forced them to retreat from Belgrade. The fortress of Kalamagdon, which still exists in Belgrade today, you can still see it, it sat with the Sava and the Danube rivers at its back, right at the point where the two rivers meet, and was well defended, at least in terms of physical defenses, but with a slim garrison. And so Suleiman took the slow approach. He used sappers to dig tunnels under the walls and to undermine them, while his heavy artillery bombarded them above ground. After about a month of this, the city was easily taken. No surprise, as it was garrisoned by just 700 men. You can consider that. This was the most important fortress protecting Hungary, and it was guarded by 700 men. It sort of harkens back to the earlier days of Ottoman conquest in the Balkans, where stupidity basically defined the sort of Christian response to Ottoman expansion. Time and time again, the soldiers are not where they should be, the focus is not where it should be, and the forces are, well, they don't have the sort of morale they need to defend against the Ottomans because they know that the focus is not where it should be and that things are not being run well. 
And so, just like that, the greatest fortress of the Hungarian border was taken. The cocky young King Louis and his advisors didn't have the political or economic clout to defend their border. It was a sort of symbol of Hungary's weakness. Remember, just recently the peasant revolt had seriously undermined relations between the peasants and nobility. Combine that with the teenage boy on the throne, and that a war in Italy had just started, which involved both the Holy Roman Empire and the Papal States, uh, as well as a separate war between Lithuania and the Duchy of Moscow. And so, it's no surprise that, well, Hungary had no friends who were going to come to its defense. Everyone was busy with their own wars. Now, also that same year, the Voivoda of Wallachia, Negoe Bazarab, died, and his young son took power with the regency. However, within a year, the son was defeated in battle and forced into exile. Now, Radu of Afumati, son of Radu the Great, took power. Now, none of this sat well with the Ottomans, who wished for the Pasha of Nikopol, also known as Nikopolis, a Romanian who had converted to Islam, uh, to go there and sort of rule Wallachia uh, on behalf of the Ottomans. Remember, the Wallachia was a tributary state, um, and, well, the Ottomans were pretty sick of the dynastic struggles in Wallachia. They just wanted their candidate on the throne because, well, the best circumstance for the Ottomans is that Wallachia is calm and quiet and pays its taxes. Well, the new Romanian Voivoda won a few battles over the next year and managed to keep the Ottomans from installing their candidate, but he was ultimately forced into exile in Transylvania and replaced with a different Romanian, Vladislav III. But a few months later, Radu was back with reinforcements and retook the throne. But a few months later, more Ottoman attacks led him into yet another exile. And a few months after that, he returned again. By this point, this back and forth had been going on for four years. And Radu implemented a reign of terror to keep Wallachia under control and to stabilize things there. And he succeeded. He was now firmly on the throne. The Ottomans had failed to install their candidate. Now, during those four years, from 1521 to 1525, no surprise, Suleiman had been busy. With Belgrade secure, the Sanjak of Herzegovina, along with the Sanjak of Bosnia, made another attempt at the Croatian capital of Knin. The Ottomans had failed to take it twice about a decade previously, if you'll remember. Now, each of the Sanjaks set about taking various fortresses to slowly cut off Knin from any re reinforcements. By the time they converged on the city itself, they had about 25,000 men and plenty of artillery. Now, because Croatia was quite separate from Hungary, still under the Hungarian king, but really doing its own thing for the most part, it did attempt to send reinforcements to save its capital. However, the Ottomans took it in less than a month. And so the sort of relief forces that were gathered had no time to get in and affect the battle at all. The resulting despair over the loss of Knin allowed the Ottomans to take several other Croatian towns and fortresses in quick succession before a different fortress, Klis, finally stopped their advance. Several attempts would be made to retake Knin in the coming years, but to no avail. The Ottomans had now taken much of the heart of Croatia, weakening Croatia along with Hungary. But remember, Ottoman activities in Croatia and Wallachia were carried out by local Ottoman rulers, not the main imperial army under Suleiman. 
For his part, instead of immediately following up his victory at Belgrade, Suleiman turned to an island which had been a thorn in the Ottoman side for decades, harassing their shipping in the eastern Mediterranean, an area which, following the conquests of Selim, the Ottomans otherwise controlled almost entirely. Suleiman now turned to the Knights Hospitaller and their fortress on the island of Rhodes. Forty-two years previously, under Suleiman's great-grandfather Mehmet the Conqueror, in case you haven't noticed, there's a bit of a pattern whereby Suleiman is kind of focusing on finishing things that Mehmet failed to complete. Uh, but, so Suleiman was kind of tackling the problem of Rhodes, but it wasn't going to be easy because the fortress defenses at Rhodes have been upgraded recently with the latest in anti-artillery technology. Obviously, the kind of onset of artillery had really affected the way fortifications worked, as we've seen in places like Constantinople, but Rhodes was prepared. In July of 1522, Suleiman arrived with a massive fleet and army. Uh, the army was estimated at about 100,000, and this doesn't seem to be much of an exaggeration. It really was 100,000, which is an incredibly large force for the time, especially to take a small island. And, no surprise, they therefore vastly outnumbered the defenders. The tactics the Ottomans employed were similar to what they had used against Belgrade. Sappers under the walls, artillery straight at the walls. The difference was that Rhodes was far better defended in terms of its garrison, nearly 7,000, so 10 times what defended Belgrade, and the strength of its walls, as mentioned. And so... Whereas Belgrade fell in about a month, this siege went on for five weeks as constant Ottoman infantry attacks failed to make any discernible progress. Then, a gunpowder bastion exploded, utterly destroying an entire section of the walls, which was immediately assaulted and taken by the Ottomans. However, soon, counterattacks brought it right back in Christian hands. Ultimately, Nearly three months from the start of the siege, the Ottoman commander ordered a massive general assault. This failed, and Suleiman was only just convinced not to execute the commander for his failure. Still, he was dismissed, and another commander took charge. Two months later, it was now November, the siege had begun in July, to give you a feel for how long this is dragging on, yet another general assault was repelled and both sides by this point were utterly exhausted. Negotiations finally began in December as the Ottomans kept up the pressure even as they were ravaged internally by disease. Finally, just two days before Christmas, a surrender was agreed to on very generous terms. The Knights Hospitaller could leave in peace, taking weapons and religious icons with them. The general population had three years to leave if they so chose. Churches were to be respected and not converted into mosques. And, as a nice cherry on top, roads would be spared Ottoman taxes for five years. It was no wonder the population agreed. It was certainly the best deal they were going to get. The soldiers, the Knights Hospitaller, left for Venetian held Crete on the first day of the year, 1523. However, once they were gone, the remaining agreements fell to dust. 
The city was brutally sacked by the Ottomans. Churches were indeed converted into mosques, and the population was brutally treated. However, it was done. Roads had fallen. This was an immense victory for the Ottomans, and it greatly eased communication and trade across the eastern Mediterranean. By now, the only non-Ottoman territories in the entire region were Venetian Crete and Cyprus. Still, the Venetians were obviously far more interested in trade and weren't going to raid Ottoman ships the way the Knights Hospitaller had, and so their presence was acceptable for the time being. Still, this major Ottoman victory came at a heavy cost. Estimates are that the Ottomans lost 50 to 60,000 soldiers in the long siege. For Suleiman, maybe most importantly, it meant that he had lost essentially an entire year to the endeavor. Fortunately for Hungary, with his forces now utterly exhausted and, well, cut in half, Suleiman was going to have to pause his conquests for a time. And so things quieted down for a few years. In 1524, a period of instability amongst the Crimean Tatars led to the Ottomans taking more direct control there. And so from now on, the Ottoman Sultan is going to appoint the Crimean Khan directly. So the Ottomans got a little more control over the Tatars. And now, at this moment, I want to talk a little bit more about the Crimean Tatars' slave raids. Perhaps the most important and influential thing about the Crimean Khaganate was these raids. Now, they began shortly after Crimean independence in 1441 and really picked up in the 1500s, i.e. the period we're talking about now. Now, this actively and, and sort of fundamentally changed the entire region, really reshaped it. Historian Orest Sebtenli described the effect on the Russian and Ukrainian steppe lands, known colloquially as the Wild Field. Quote, What made the Wild Field so forbidding were the Tatars. Year after year, their swift raiding parties swept down on the towns and villages to pillage, kill the old and frail, and drive away thousands of captives to be sold as slaves in the Crimean port of Kaffa a city often referred to by the Russians as the vampire that drinks the blood of Rus. For example, from 1450 to 1586, 86 raids were recorded. From 1600 to 1647, 70 raids. Although estimates of the number of captives taken in a single raid reach as high as 30,000, the average figure was closer to 3,000. In Podilia alone, about one-third of all the villages were devastated or abandoned between 1578 and 1583, end quote. So you get a feel for how long and how, how sort of sustained these raids were and a bit of a sense for the number of people taken away as slaves. Another historian, Brian Glynn Williams, spoke of the effect of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth alone and how these raids affected it, quote, Fisher estimates that in the 16th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth lost around 20,000 individuals a year, and that from 1474 to 1694, as many as a million Commonwealth citizens were carried off into Crimean slavery. End quote. This appears to be one example of why modern Tatars even look very different than the Mongols they're supposed to be descended from as so many slaves were brought in, and ultimately they ended up being the majority of the population in the Crimea. 
the Ottoman Empire was by far the biggest market for these slaves. And so they also affected the sort of ethnic and cultural situation of the empire by their very presence in such large numbers. Finally, historian Mikhail Kizilov described the status of slaves in the Ottoman Empire, saying, quote, It seemed that the position and everyday conditions of a slave depended largely on his or her owner. Some slaves indeed could spend the rest of their days doing exhausting labor, as the Crimean vizier, Sefar Ghazi Aga, mentions in one of his letters. The slaves were often a plow and a scythe of their owners. Most terrible, perhaps, was the fate of those who became galley slaves, whose sufferings were poeticized in many Ukrainian Dumas songs. Both female and male slaves were often used for sexual purposes. End quote. As we'll soon see, Suleiman even took some slaves into his harem, including the woman who would become his greatest love and the mother to the next sultan. And so we see in that way that the slave trade very directly impacts the history that we're discussing. Now, importantly, Bulgaria was lucky to be spared because Bulgaria was an integral part of the empire. Um, you know, the, these raids generally affected the steppe lands around Ukraine and the Duchy of uh, Russia and Moldavia, Wallachia, uh, Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. But if you were a core Ottoman territory, obviously the sort of Ottoman vassal state of Crimea wasn't going to raid you. And so although we can sort of infer that some of these slaves probably made it to Bulgaria as well, Ottoman slaves and probably affected Bulgaria in some way, in general, it was fortunately spared from this sort of horror of a slave trade. Ultimately, looking at it from as a whole, there are estimates that about 3 million people were enslaved by the Crimean Tatars over the centuries. And now, true, this pales in comparison to the estimated 12 to 20 million people transported in the Atlantic slave trade. It's still is pretty massive for the population size of the region. I mean, we're, we're not talking about taking from one continent and sending to another continent, but from one region of Europe into another region of Europe and a little bit of Asia. Now, moving away from the slave trade, also in 1524, European alliances were shifting in some very important ways. First, Sigismund I of Poland allied himself with France in order to counteract the growing power of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was cozying up with the Duchy of Moscow, who the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is fighting all the time. Now, I know it gets a bit confusing. It's sort of a World War I-style network of alliances, but keep up with me here. So, so we see Poland trying to become friends with France. However, the very next year, France was badly defeated at the Battle of Pavia, uh, by Charles and by the Holy Roman Empire, and that sort of ongoing war in Italy, which was the reason the Papal States and the Holy Roman Empire couldn't help Hungary when Belgrade fell. And so this huge loss for France uh, basically led to France withdrawing from the alliance. France had to surrender to the Holy Roman Empire, and the King of France was taken as a prisoner in Madrid. Now, Charles, for his part, could see that his position in Europe was improving with this battle. Obviously, things were looking good for him. But he was kind of on the lookout for a way to make some substantial gains against the Ottomans. And so to that end, he had been negotiating with the Safavid Persians for about five years, hoping to work with them to mount a joint attack from east and west on the Ottomans. 
1524, an alliance was agreed to, but the death of the Safavid Shah almost immediately afterwards basically meant that the plan had to be shelved. Still, Charles remained interested in this as a way to mount a major effective against the Ottomans, and so he kind of sort of kept up some low-level negotiations and kind of exploring his options. Still, biding his time before restarting major land operations, in 1525, Suleiman appointed a man named Selman Ris to run the Ottoman navy. Now remember, the Portuguese were still a major power in the Indian Ocean, bringing spices around Africa and bypassing the trade routes that were once dominated by the Mamluks, leading the Mamluks to fight the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean as well. well. Now that the Ottomans had taken over all the former Ottoman lands, they had also sort of taken over Mamluk uh, geopolitical positions and the fact that they wanted to defend the overland trade routes for spices and things getting to Europe, and so the Portuguese were now a major sort of economic rival. Now, Sultan Selim had wanted to kind of increase naval presence in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, but he died before he could really do that. And so with the Mamluks kind of going away, they had been fighting the Portuguese. Once they were defeated, that stopped. Selim couldn't really get anything going. And so the Portuguese by this point had had quite a bit of breathing room. Uh, but Suleiman wanted to mount a serious challenge to their presence. Fortunately for him, his new commander, Reese had once fought for the Mamluks against the Portuguese. He was very experienced in just this sort of thing. Now, just before Reese's appointment, the Portuguese had mounted a major raid on the Red Sea, making it clear to anyone that the Ottomans couldn't afford to ignore this region and simply focus on the Mediterranean. They had to secure, at the very least, Egypt via the Red Sea. Now, as Ottoman strength was still kind of regaining and the Ottomans were about ready to resume conquest, the situation in Hungary was getting desperate. The nobility had attempted to gather and form an army to counterattack after the loss of Belgrade, but a disease outbreak had led everyone to just go home. The treasury then decided that it was wise to devalue, take away some of the precious metal of the Hungarian currency in an attempt to raise more revenue. This, however, as we know today, is stupid and led to a near economic collapse. But more importantly for Hungary, the line of fortresses, which had defined the Ottoman-Hungarian border for decades, was in tatters. The loss of so many fortresses in Croatia and the loss of Belgrade meant that Really, all that stood between the Ottomans and the Hungarian capital of Buda were the endless fields and rivers of Vojvodina and Hungary itself. At this point also, allies were increasingly in short supply as Poland had signed a peace treaty with the Ottomans in 1525. And we know Charles V is interested in finding the Ottomans, but not quite yet. He still wants that Safavid alliance. And yet, in spite of all of this, instead of recognizing the danger they were in, the Hungarian nobility continued to fight amongst themselves and lobbied hard for, well, rather lobbied hard against peace with the Ottomans. Uh, it's believed that the Ottomans may have sent as many as two peace envoys during these years, and both were rejected by the Hungarians. To make matters worse, after France's defeat by, via the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the French king was imprisoned, as I mentioned, and sent a plea to Suleiman to attack the Habsburgs. 
Of course, doing so would mean attacking Hungary first, and so, well, we can say Suleiman was interested. In fact, I'm going to read you his response. I think it's a bit colorful and interesting. It gives you a sense of how the Ottoman sultans viewed themselves. So, to the king of France, Suleiman wrote, quote, I, who am the sultan of sultans, the sovereign of sovereigns, the dispenser of crowns to the monarchs on the face of the earth, the shadow of the god on earth, the sultan and sovereign lord of the Mediterranean Sea and of the Black Sea, of Rumelia and of Anatolia, of Caramania, of the land of Romans, of Dulcaldria, of Diyarbakir, of Kurdistan, of Azerbaijan, of Persia, of Damascus, of Aleppo, of Cairo, of Mecca, of Medina, of Jerusalem, of all of Arabia, of Yemen, and many other lands which my noble forefathers and my glorious ancestors, may God light up their tombs, conquered by the force of their arms, and which my august majesty has made subject to my flamboyant sword and my victorious blade. I, Sultan Suleiman Khan, son of Sultan Selim Khan, son of Sultan Bayezid Khan, to thee who art Francesco, king of the province of France, you have sent to my port, refuge of sovereigns, a letter by the hand of your faithful servant, Frangipani, and you have furthermore entrusted to him miscellaneous verbal communications. You have informed me that the enemy has overrun your country and that you are at present in prison and a captive, and you have asked aid and succors to your deliverance. All this you're saying, having been set forth at the foot of my throne which controls the world. Your situation has gained my imperial understanding in every detail, and I considered all of it. There is nothing astonishing in emperors being defeated and made captive. Take courage, then, and be not dismayed. Our glorious predecessors and our illustrious ancestors, may God light up their tombs, have never ceased to make war to repel the foe and conquer his lands. We ourselves have followed in their footsteps and have at all times conquered provinces and citadels of great strength and difficult of approach. Night and day, our horses saddled with our saber is girt. May the God of high promote righteousness. May whosoever he will be accomplished. For the rest, question your ambassador and be informed. Know that it will be as said. End quote. Invitation in hand, if it wasn't so clear from the letter, Suleiman accepted the French offer and left Constantinople for the Hungarian border on April 23rd, 1526. Next time, we'll see what fate befalls the Kingdom of Hungary. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check us out on Facebook. Get in touch. Check out the website. You know, there's always a timeline, list of important people, images, maps, all that great stuff for every single episode. And, well, Uspech.